welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Find subscription links and more resources to make an impact with data leadership at dataleadershiplessons.com. Today, we welcome Jerry Fu. Jerry is a conflict resolution coach who helps Asian American leaders advance in their career and life journeys. After several pharmacy leadership roles, Jerry started coaching in 2017 to help other Asian American professionals deal with the conflict they encounter at work with their culture and within themselves. Jerry, welcome to the show. Hey, Anthony, thanks for having me. So like we do with all our first time guests, why don't you just take a moment, tell the audience a bit more about your career before becoming a coach and how it led you to doing what you do now. Certainly, yeah. Um, I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare uh, when I started college, but when I got a C in organic chemistry, I knew I had to uh, pivot quickly from my pre-med aspirations. And while you know that wasn't an insurmountable thing at the time in my mind, I thought that was the death of my uh, physician dreams. And so um, I said, "Well, let me uh, do something else in health. Do something else in healthcare." And what was available? Well, pharmacy was. And so I said, "Well, let me convince pharmacy school that I would make a good pharmacist." And at the time, um, jobs were in high demand, uh, salaries were starting to scale up pretty quickly. And so I thought, oh, I you know, picked a good time to ride this wave. And so um, my mom and I uh, slightly disagreed on the, the path that I should take in pharmacy. Uh, it wasn't that it was that different, but she felt one chain pharmacy was better than another. And so uh, due to my own conflict aversion, I just basically went with, with her recommendation and um, was not happy with it, <laughs> but I, at one point I, I became complacent and I, you know, had some nice things while I was working there. And so I held on to it as best I could. But when I, after about five years, when I had a really bad customer service incident, I uh, just said, nope, I've had enough. I need to find something else. And so part of what you can see is building up here, right? Is that the customer service aspect uh, in pharmacy or in chain pharmacy specifically, uh, kind of leaves you unsatisfied or resentful after you've dealt with enough difficult patients or customers, right? They mm -hmm. say, it doesn't matter, you know, how unfair or how unreasonable uh, their stance is, uh, we need them to be paying customers. So we just kind of need you to, you know, kind of dampen it down a little bit. I said, okay, you know, this isn't going to uh, work long-term. So can, can I ask you say, one thing? I want to ask you one thing about it. that in particular. So go I imagine it. that people mm -hmm. that are drawn to doing pharmacy work often are mm -hmm. thinking about that kind of scientific side of it, that, that medical side of it, where you're mm -hmm. thinking about dispensing the, the medications, understanding the medications. It reminds yeah. me of when I, right out of college, I became a stockbroker because I nice. loved the financial analyst side of it. And I loved thinking mm -hmm. about stocks and I liked connecting it to people's recommendations or whatever, but I quickly mm -hmm. learned that being a stockbroker was a sales job. It was all oh, about people. Yeah. It mattered way less mm -hmm. how well you analyzed the securities and way more mm -hmm. how you interacted with your customers or potential customers and your people or whatever. And it sounds mm -hmm. to me like what you found in pharmacy was the same kind of situation where like your focus was over here, like this is why I'm mm -hmm. doing this work. But then you found the reality of it was it's a customer service position as much as it is anything. And that completely overwhelmed any of the rest of the experience. Am I reading that right? Is that a fair parallel? Oh, that's absolutely the case. Um, well, part of it is, yeah, you you have to build relationships regardless of whatever profession you uh, choose, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're an accountant or 
a stockbroker or a pharmacist or a physician or an engineer, anything like that, right? You have to manage your relationships well. Right. Um, you know, whether it's your team or customers or clients, things like that. And at the same time, yeah, if you love data and you want to focus on it, yeah, get a research job, you know, where people leave you alone, right? right. <laughs> they say, oh, well, he's the technical expert. We're just going to let, you know, give him a couple guidelines and then get out of his way. But, you know, if we're a retail job, which is very visible in the community, right? Uh, yeah, relationships are inevitable. And mm -hmm. yeah, the funny and sad thing is that in these retail pharmacies, you're basically giving away your clinical knowledge for free, right? right? If you call me and ask me a drug question and I tell you, and you say, hey, thanks, Jerry, click, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't get paid for any of that. So now I have to upsell gummy bears and batteries just to, you know, <laughs> offset true. the fact that I'm giving clinical knowledge for free. Yeah. So yeah, um, not a not a great business model if you're going to want to uh, get paid to give clinical knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, all that to say, so I leveraged my network because um, I wanted to get into teaching pharmacy students, but I didn't have a residency or a PhD because I wasn't working on my career mm. uh, in pharmacy. So uh, I leveraged the network. My friend of mine who worked for a pharmacy consulting company here in Houston said, hey, you know, we uh, have an open position since I got promoted. Do you want to apply for it? I said, absolutely. So I walk away from a full-time job with benefits and just earned the third week of vacation. And I said, nope, doesn't matter. The other 49 still stink. I don't want to be around here. Yeah. So I take this job hoping that this would be the last company I, I would ever have to work for. And I know how jealous a lot of my friends were when they found out that I you know, was given this opportunity, just kind of gift wrapped to me. Yeah. Um, I still had to convince them I was worth taking a chance on. But you know, uh, anyway, 11 months later, I get fired. And it's like, oh, what do I do now, right? <laughs> uh, the shame and the embarrassment, everyone's going to be asking questions, right? Uh, the simple answer is that I like the idea of being an instructor more than actually doing the work of becoming an instructor. Mm -hmm. A big challenge was the fact that in my chain pharmacy job, as long as I was, I was doing a better job than like 70 or 75% of the workforce, uh, and I knew some really incompetent pharmacists, you know, that <laughs> were on the payroll. And as I said, well, you know, as long as I'm better than 75%, you know, my boss will be fine with me. But now in this smaller company, I'm being held accountable to the position I was hired to do. Mm. And... I learned quickly that uh, your boss is not paying you to give them stories as to why you didn't get the job done. The boss is paying you to get the job done, right. and I didn't. So um, it wasn't love. It didn't feel loving at the time. It was very painful, but it really was, you know, the wake up call I needed to recognize that hey, whatever I was thinking or doing was not going to work. Mm. Um, that's when the roller coaster got really weird. After about six weeks of unemployment, I managed to find my way into a job, uh, very naive at this point as to what kind of, uh, you know, sh shady things are going on in Houston. I ended up at an independent pharmacy job where four of my paychecks bounced while I was filling for crooked doctors. Oh. So double whammy, I'm jeopardizing my license and this guy's ripping me off. Like I'm not even getting paid. <laughs> so, uh, in my conflict aversion, right. In the same way I was afraid to deal with a boss who's upset with me. Now I have a boss who's ripping me off and I have no idea how to confront him, right? I'm, you know, I'm frustrated. I'm anxious because the only way I even have a chance of getting paid is if I move more, uh, you know, shady prescriptions. Right. Hmm. And so thankfully my friends got me out of that job, um, after about nine months and then got me on with a, le a legitimate company. But, uh, they said, Hey, we like you, but we can't pay more than eight hours a week. So I said, okay, so rent or groceries this month. I just don't know <laughs> which one to go with. Um, I end up working for them out in Austin, which is about two and a half hours away from Houston, uh, just to get more hours. And now I have no idea what my life is going to look like. So 
that summer was very pivotal because some friends of mine who run a pharmacy leadership nonprofit said, hey, we know you've been facilitating leaderships on the fraternity side, but a leadership uh, spot opened up for our national meeting. Would you be willing to help facilitate this workshop with us? And I said, absolutely. Hmm. And so teaching leadership kind of unlocked some different thinking in me in that before I said, oh, leadership is hard. The times I tried it, I wasn't good at it. I don't know if I'll ever be good at it. But now uh, after teaching it and seeing it modeled for me, I said, well, what if I could be a good leader? You know, what would that look like? How would I carry myself? What kind of work would that involve? And so that fall, I had the chance to either stay part-time in Austin, with a, which was a great team, or uh, take on a full-time manager position that had opened up in Houston. And I said, well, I'm ready to come home. I can't be afraid of these challenges. I'm going to take this on. Mm -hmm. The following year, I proceeded to get written up by management because I was not uh, disciplining or firing uh, problematic technicians because mm -hmm. the, this ongoing theme of conflict aversion, oh, I, you know, I want to be liked, I want to be respected, which is two actually exclusive things. You can't be liked and respected. You know, it was very hard to balance the two, right? And so got in the doghouse, had to figure my way out, managed to get myself you know, uh, off probation right as the company had their funding pulled. Basically, <laughs> the owners at that point had decided that uh, the business model we were investing in was no longer sustainable. So they decided to move on. Hmm. And the only reason I got an interview with my next company was that I had leadership experience on my resume now. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, you know, leadership really saved my career. You know, first, my friends were kind enough to give me a fish to help kind of get me out of this chain pharmacy complacency. And now I'm being taught to fish. And so now, you know, I can actually get the attention of other companies. Um, unfortunately, with these smaller pharmacy jobs that actually offer a, a good quality of life, they don't last very long. I call them icebergs. So it's nice that I have more icebergs to hop to, but they're still melting. And so four years ago, when my previous employer went under, um, I said, well, I'm tired of fighting insurance companies. I'm tired of chasing scripts, but I love teaching these leadership workshops, which I'd consistently done since um, 2012 when I first started. Hmm. What would a career in coaching look like? Uh, what kind of work would that involve? And so still scared to fail, still scared of rejection. I, you know, some friends were kind of have to hire me. So it was kind of like a hobby at this point. Mm -hmm. And it took a pandemic, right, for me to finally say, how much longer am I going to wait? Uh, so yeah, last October, I filed the LLC, got the website up, and now it's just try, struggle, fail until <laughs> I can transition out of my day job. Yeah, well, and, and that's this is a, a story that aspects to, like I'm not in the, the pharmacy space, but I, mm -hmm. aspects to this really resonate with me and I'm sure resonate with a lot of the audience out there is that, you know, mm -hmm. you've been through some rough stuff, you know, some, some <laughs> bad luck, some self-imposed mm -hmm. challenges, some, mm -hmm. you know, opportunities to learn about your own weaknesses or proclivities. And, and, and I appreciate you being open and sharing that with us. Um, and then having the courage to keep getting off that mat when you're beaten down mm -hmm. and then find the courage to take a even bolder step into going mm -hmm. into coaching and finding this thing. It reminds me, like I've, I've long said, cause I've been doing data work and, and data management work pretty much my whole career, pretty much since I quit being a stockbroker. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and it was, and, and that yeah. only lasted like six months. I got the, the, the certifications mm -hmm. and then quickly realized what I had done and got out of it. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> data and, and different aspects of it, technology and all that called to me early on. And at one mm -hmm. point it was probably about, uh, it's, at this point, it's probably like seven, eight years ago. 
I said to myself, and I was doing conference speaking, and I'd, I'd had a chief data officer role, and I'd you know been keynoting things and stuff, and I'm, I'm like, you know, this has been such a wild journey through these different positions, did programming stuff, did um, consulting, had opportunities to, to lead. And I'm like, what are the chances that I ended up doing this stuff? And it got me thinking. And I'm like, you know, the more I think about it, the more I realize that this life, this role, this thing that I'm doing has been calling to me for my entire life. And I remembered back in even high school, I didn't know about mm -hmm. data management or data leadership careers. You know, I didn't know, like, mm -hmm. but I knew yeah. that I'm like, I want to do something that I can be respected in. I want to do something where I can be um, leading things that I want to be a, a, a knowledgeable person in my area. And I want to be completely mm -hmm. anonymous outside of it. Like, I am never <laughs> going to threaten Joe Rogan for podcast listeners because this is yeah. not that kind of show right mm -hmm. like and that's mm -hmm. and that's okay because the audience I want to reach is a, is hopefully a deeper connection it's more specific connection mm -hmm. and when I think about it as I think about it I'm like what are the chances that I would be end up doing this I'm like the more I think about it, it's like, it's a hundred percent. It is a hundred percent that I was going to end up doing something like this. Now the details, mm -hmm. yeah, that's all crazy random or whatever. But every time I yeah. made a new choice, it pulled me mm -hmm. in this direction to take, mm -hmm. you know, like to address something that wasn't right before. And, and it's for me, mm -hmm. I knew functionally pretty early in my career, like, this is what I do. This is what my life's work mm -hmm. is about. This is, this is, this is who I am. For me, it's always been context. It's always been like, I don't know if I should be doing this on the industry side and the consulting side as an entrepreneur, as a you know, content creator, whatever, or some combination of them all. But to know what you do and to have that calling, to listen to it. Like to me, that that's what's so exciting about hearing your journey is that this has been calling to you and you have you have taken different steps towards it. And now you're at this point where you're like, yes, this has come together to now I feel that this is what I was always supposed to do. And now I'm here. Mm -hmm. So that it just I wanted to share that because that's how I relate to this. And I imagine mm -hmm. that others will. And it's and it's so sad that most I think most people never mm -hmm. find that never find mm -hmm. that true passion of what their their life's work is about. So mm -hmm. can you tell me more about how that dawned on you and how as you started to to like leap in all in which i have a tremendous respect for because i think that's the only way to do if you're found your life's work and you don't jump in a hundred percent then you're mm -hmm. hitting yourself in a new way right mm -hmm. so you saw that you're like coach how did you figure out what that context was for you and how you wanted to create a business around that talk me through that um that experience for you yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's this uh, great book called Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. And one of the best things about that book was they basically said, in a, if you're going to approach your life with a design mentality, then you recognize that the important pillars of life, which include work, love, play, and health, right? These are iterative and you have to evaluate these on a continual basis because what worked for you five years ago probably isn't working for you now, mm -hmm. right? And then what's working for you now may not work for you five years from now. And to be able to recognize that and continue to experiment and, you know, ha involve friends, right? In the process, hey, check my blind spots, things like that. And so that really helped me because I 
would notice along my journey, right? What made me feel alive, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, one of the things that they ask you to do is to keep a good times journal. Hey, what makes you feel alive? Oh, I really have fun uh, when I go salsa dancing, right? It's like, oh, this makes me feel alive. Or when I'm cooking for friends and I have a meal together with them and we're having meaningful conversation, you know what? That's, that's something I need to take a note of. And same thing with coaching. When I ask questions and I see clients kind of have that epiphany, and then not only do they have that epiphany, they act on it in a way that leads them to have this level of closure with, you know, a temperamental boss or, you know, they're able to make some difficult but necessary decisions regarding their career. Um, you start to realize, hey, you know what, I, I, should, I should have more of this, right? I, I need to find a way to cut out uh, or minimize the things that I don't like, you know, like admin paperwork or things like that, right? We can automate you know, invoicing, things like that, uh, mm -hmm. or we can uh, hire someone else to do it if you have enough capital, right? And so when you realize, hey, let me start to, you know, really be intentional about expanding what I love doing and, you know, reducing what I, what I, what drags on me. Mm -hmm. um, it's not an evil or selfish thing, really, we need people that are willing to find a way to focus on what makes them come alive so that they can better contribute uh, for themselves and to the people around them that are important to them. And from there, you know, not just strive for individual success, but to have significance that goes well beyond uh, their life journey. Right. So in, in your coaching, you have a specific emphasis on helping Asian American leaders and with some challenges that are, are unique to them. Can you talk about what those are and, and how you're targeting that community um, and, and helping them solve those, those problems. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Yeah. Great question. Um, so I'll give a, an example just so people can kind of, you know, I, we're not just talking in vague terms here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one of my friends, when I was in college, one of my friends said, Hey, you know, I'm, this is during summer break. He's like, Hey, I'm going to be in your area of town. You know, do you want to hang out for a couple of days? And so I said, yeah, you know, let me run it by my mom, make sure that everything's clear. And then, yeah, if she says yes, then yeah, you know, come on over, hang out. And so this, you know, my friend comes over, he hangs out for a couple of days. My mom is a kind and gracious host and, you know, we have a good time. And then, you know, he leaves and then not even like two hours after he left, my mom is like, can you believe this guy? Like, you know, he didn't, he didn't make the bed when he was done. He, he left hair in the shower. Like I can't, you know, you know, I, you can have him over again, but I, I wouldn't recommend it. Right. And this is, this is the method of conflict resolution that I grew up with, yeah. right? Oh, you know, like, let them save face. We don't want to embarrass them or, you know, tell us we don't, we're ashamed of what, that our expectations might be unreasonable for them. So let's just keep, keep that to the, our, ourselves. Mm. And then when they break them, you know, we secretly just kind of write them off and, you know, they just don't come over again. Right. And we just get over whatever resentment that or frustration we have with enough time passing. Mm. Right. And so, but this is what I grew up with, right? And there's also layered on top of the fact that chain pharmacy is telling me, hey, like if the patient's being unreasonable, like just don't antagonize them further. And mm -hmm. so to give clients and really groups of organizations that have Asians that, you know, are, have this mentality, right? Uh, I mean, there's plenty of organizations say, you know, every time we check in with like our Asian employees, we ask them if everything's going fine and they always say yes. And then later we find that there's like some dumpster fire that they're hiding yeah. because they're, uh, they're too embarrassed because they felt like the initial admittance that something is wrong would imply that they're incompetent when really the, the worst problem is that they're not volunteer. They don't feel, uh, you know, 
uh, bold enough to really volunteer this information, right? And so, uh, for example, yeah, so one of my clients at one point, you know, her boss called her after hours, she didn't pick up, he blew up at her the next day and, you know, questioned her commitment, even though his expectations for the job were very vague. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she asked me, well, you know, how do I handle this guy? Like, how do I address my frustration, but not risk getting fired because he's already lost his temper once. And so, you know, to give her a framework, um, to tell her to say, Hey, go ahead and organize your thoughts. Um, you know, write them down on paper, organize them, uh, rehearse them, right. Don't just write them down on paper, rehearse them in the front of a mirror with friends who can role play with you and then find 10 seconds of courage to say, Hey boss, um, you know, do you have 10 minutes? I, I need to, I need your help trying to resolve something. Right. Um, and so to give them the, the courage, uh, to move forward with these conversations so that they can actually achieve closure and say, and exhale and say, Oh, I'm so glad I got that off my chest. Um, that is what I hope for them. Yeah. I, it, it is something that I think, uh, we often forget is that mm -hmm. a lot of our proclivities or our, our, our what we interpret as individual or personal like challenges or weaknesses aren't mm -hmm. genetic in nature. They aren't, you know, mm -hmm. we weren't born with them, but we grew up because we were in an environment or we learned a, a behavior or we, um, you know, had some particular struggle in our lives that resulted mm -hmm. in this. And those are, are coachable, changeable things. And and that's something mm -hmm. that there are patterns and, and kind of cultural norms that can sometimes paint us into corners and make us, you know, where it can be difficult for us to manage in a situation where the others around us find it very comfortable. And I think mm -hmm. that's uh, that can manifest in a lot of different ways. And I think you have mm -hmm. you have focused in on an, an, an area and a pattern that is relevant to you um, mm -hmm. and is, is relevant to your clients. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, for the audience out there, I think how many more kinds of patterns exist like that or how many more challenges do mm -hmm. we face that are like, hey, we 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 have this hang up or we have this challenge that's deep. Like this is something that you don't just say, okay, I'm going to come to work and I'm going to be, I'm going to be courageous today. And I'm going to address these issues. How to, like that's not possible. You need mm -hmm. some support. You need some sort of assistance in even evaluating that circumstance. And, and that's what I find is interesting from a coaching or consultative perspective is that sometimes if you can just reframe the problem and, and structure an understanding of the problem, the solution becomes a much more straightforward process. Like even in just what you describe, I'm like, yeah, can I think of things in my own life that I'm like, I really struggle with this. Is it because I'm a bad person or is it because I've learned something or have mm -hmm. conditioned myself to say to myself, oh, I can't handle this situation well because I am blah. And that mm -hmm. I think is something that it, it, it's gotten me thinking about that avenue. And I imagine mm -hmm. that's something that you as a coach are dealing with constantly, like you're helping people understand and address some of those things that even if they were completely thinking about it, completely looking in the mirror, they mm -hmm. wouldn't even be able to see. Is that, is that accurate? Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, it's, it's funny with reframing because it is one of the essential things in not just uh, coaching, but uh, lifestyle design. And you have to reframe 
wisely, right? You can't just say, well, you know, it's really not that big a problem because that's what a lot of people do. Oh, I, I dealt with one organization where people were, you know, showing up late or they're flaking out on meetings. And uh, when, managed, when, you know, leadership brought this up that people weren't all that committed to the group and the, the response was, no, it's just, well, just lower your expectations. It's not the end of the world. Right. That's not a good reframe. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's not the big deal. Really? Just, just you'll live. And it's like, okay, no, uh, but it is because reframing really the clue to reframing, right. It's like, well, how can we see this differently? Like, even if we shift over the perspective by even five or 10 degrees, like what, what new things do we notice so that we can continue to work around this, this obstacle in such a way that we eventually get to the other side, even if it's not the original way we thought we were going to take. Um, and yeah, when you reframe, like, it's like when I got fired, right. Initially, even as of about six or seven years ago, I remember telling my friend that, you know, getting fired had to be one of the worst things that ever happened to me. And he pauses for a second and he goes, could you look at it as the best thing that's ever happened to you? And just, it just kind of judo flipped the whole <laughs> perspective. And I said, you know, I guess I have to, what do I tell people now? It was the wake up call, right? It was uh, the, the humbling moment I needed to realize, Hey, you know what? Um, I need to grow. I need to reevaluate. I need to adapt. And, you know, I, I tell people now, right? People get mad over things that, like with bad breakups or whatever else like that. And I just ask them and I don't, I don't state the case because as soon as I state the case, right? Uh, they'll start to push back and dig their heels in. But if I just say something like, what if this could be the best thing that ever happened to you? Mm -hmm. And uh, we, I just let them kind of fill in their own, uh, you know, evidence to, to support their stance if they're willing to, to uh, entertain the possibility. Oh man. So I, I, you got me thinking again. So I, I, I have this curse of being okay. able to like convince myself of anything. Like I have this ability to like be able to take whatever Join my conclusion is. And yeah. And, and, and what, what it has occurred to me at times, and mm -hmm. I think this is also relevant kind of extending that whole notion of reframing, mm -hmm. you know, we as individuals are couple, there's a couple truths. We are mm -hmm. not getting all the data. We don't have access to all mm -hmm. the data. You think about work conflict. Yeah. You think about different perspectives. You think about what's yeah. happening. We don't have all the data. We right. don't have all of it. And every piece of data that we do comes in through this subjective filter in our brains. Mm -hmm. And then we yeah. tell, then we get going. Then we start telling mm -hmm. the narrative around it. And we piece it together and we start mm -hmm. spinning. And mm -hmm. we can find ourselves pretty far removed from reality in our interpretation of the limited data that we are subjectively analyzing to then come up with the conclusions that we are then over-engineering in our minds. Mm -hmm. It helps to reorient that sometimes through an external perspective, certainly, but I would also argue it, it, it helps to get more data. It helps to get a better, more objective set of inputs wherever mm -hmm. possible. I've, I've even recently, I've been you know, I've misinterpreted scenarios because the data that I had was skewed as I learned by mm. gathering more data and my interpretation of it was not unreasonable, but was also incorrect because mm. I had all, I had like preconceived from certain data. I'd overweighted some of the, the relevance of that data in absence mm. of other data and led me to a conclusion that was just wildly wrong just wildly mm. the wrong conclusion and the wrong corresponding action. So mm. I think that's an, it's an interesting thought around how we all encounter these kinds of situations, especially in careers. And especially where like I've, I've, I've long said, like nobody cares about you as much as you do. 
you know, and, mm-hmm. and the, yeah. we are not the center of the universe, but we're the center of our universe. You know, we yes. are the most important person to us under most circumstances, granted family and all yeah. of that are, are very important, mm-hmm. but you filter things through that personal lens. And, and it, I think having that kind of guidance or even just ability to start thinking in different ways, however you can do that is, is a, is a worthwhile pursuit. But I want to bring, mm-hmm. I want to bring up an example that is sure. unusually, uh, this is not something I've ever been able to do with another guest, but I'm going to use an example okay. from this call. So as we got onto this call, I was two minutes late. And part of it was because I had a little bit of a technical issue getting on, but more of it was because I'm always two minutes late if I'm lucky these days. And I kind of, and I mentioned to you as we got on this call, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a couple minutes late. It's the story of my life these days or whatever. And I hate it. I hate it because I used <laughs> to be punctual and I used to Fair be enough. like, I would always be there. I would always be on time or whatever. And I am existing in, in, a, in an organizational culture that is not as punctual. And, and that's kind of our lives in the Zoom call world of COVID. Like we're always going right up to the top of the hour. And then it takes a little bit of time to connect to the next thing where we're, we're running a few minutes late. But how yeah. do you reconcile it? Because and, and my, my solution up till now has just been throw up my arms and be like, I don't know what to do versus <laughs> like, is there a better way to address that? a healthier way to address that where I know in the back of my mind, every time it happens, it hurts because I hate not being punctual, but I've also had to acknowledge, like, I don't know how to solve for that in reality. Is there a better way to process that versus just doing what I did on the, on the call that we, we started a little while ago. Anthony, your, your openness is, is wonderful. So thank you for (laughs) allowing us to unpack this because it depends really, because there's no one right solution. I'll give you a couple options to play around with, though, because punctuality is a huge, huge thing for me. And I was late for my nine o'clock this morning by two minutes, and I knew. And plus, it was with an Asian coach, and I'm just like, oh, like this like unpardonable <laughs> sin, right? Just a little late. I got my computer up late, and turns out it was a phone call that she registered for, so I didn't even have to get my computer up. I just need to, you know, zero in on the number hmm. and my computer. Uh, decided to upgrade everything while it was in standby. So, you know, all sorts of excuses. But yeah. you have a couple options here. Uh, so one example I'll give, uh, I'll give a couple, but one example I'll give is uh, when we teach leadership workshops, we started to introduce the idea of what does the group want to own? Like, how do they want to make this theirs? What kind of like guidelines or rules do they want to establish for themselves? And they'll say things like, you know, don't interrupt, uh, you know, keep your phone on silent, uh, no judging, right? Um, things like that. And the couple that we always plant just to see if they, you know, it's their choice to accept or reject it. Mm-hmm. One is punctuality. And we say, do you like starting on time? And they're like, well, yeah. And there's no one says no, right? <laughs> and then we say, well, how do you want to define starting on time? Well, you know, yeah, at the top of the hour. And then someone usually jumps in, someone usually jumps in with, oh, we should have a five minute grace period, you know? And then, so that, and that's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's negotiable with the group as long as, yeah. Because the group now has a say in it, there's more buy-in, right? Because it's not just me telling them, hey, you got to be on time because people feel like, yeah, I know, I guess you'd be on time. There's no ownership, right? Yeah. Um, so if it's something the group agrees to, they're more likely to to own it and, and support it. So that's one option you could take. The other is to incorporate some creative or fun penalties. So for one group, one year, they said, if you are late and according to, if, if you are beyond the five minute grace period, mm-hmm. you have to stand up and sing, I'm a little teapot in front of the entire group. 
Nice. And we always recommend songs with gestures because, you know, just making him sing is kind of boring. But if they have to, like, do the dance and spin around <laughs> in the circle, it's great. Um, the other example that came to mind, though, was um, the, the band director in my middle school. Um, at the top of the hour, he just locked the door. If you weren't there by the time he was supposed to start, he just locked the door and you um, got a zero for the day because you weren't there. Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you when you shape that environment to engineer out that flaw, people may have resented it, mm -hmm. but it still was very effective. Yeah. So it's really up to you as to what kind of solution you think you would uh, want to support, right? Because if you say, hey, I am a man of integrity, I, I want to keep this promise to myself, you know, do I want to incorporate some fun rewards if I, if I, for every day that I honor it and I get on like this streak of like 10, 20 days where I am like there, not just on time at the top of the hour, but five minutes early. Sure. Or you could, you know, have your computer shut down you know, and have some really, uh, get some money involved, right? Just like, if I am not on time, you know, today, then I have to donate $2,000 to like the charity that I hate. You know, mm -hmm. like, you know, for a cause I don't believe in. Right. And it's kind of funny how I would never engineer something like that for myself. But I do know that um, to trick myself forward in a way. Right. Like when I ran my marathon, when I registered for it, I knew that if I could just like pay the hundred something dollars, I knew I was going to back out because I said, nope, I paid the money. I'm going to I'm going to let that sunk cost bias like move me forward. And mm -hmm. it didn't matter how many people tried to talk me out of it. Um, I said, no, I, I committed to this and I, 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 because nothing made me more upset than feeling like I didn't get my money's worth out of something. Right. So, uh, the question to ask yourself, you know, in this situation is, you know, what kind of solution would you respond best to? Do you need something where you kind of engineer out the flaw and don't even allow for, uh, you know, wiggle room or, you know, do you need a nicer carrot to kind of reward you? Or do you need some public accountability, uh, with some real consequences? It's up to you. Hmm. Well, and, and it's a situation in my context that I realize mm -hmm. I cannot control the fact that meetings are going to start late and go long in my organization. Okay. I'm just not going to be Fair able enough. to assert that kind of influence. But I think your, your point is well taken is, is that I can create a framework for my mm -hmm. own actions in mm -hmm. a way that says, okay, if we hit the top of the hour, don't care what the meeting is, I can leave and get to the mm -hmm. next meeting. I don't have yeah. to stay a few minutes longer and I can, yeah. and I'll own the consequences of that. But for Good. the most part, I think that that's, you know, thinking through how can I manage that situation in a way that I find aligns with my internal values and will be hopefully minimally disruptive, but will also encourage that culture to evolve over time where if maybe I'm successful in becoming more punctual, some of the people mm -hmm. in my direct areas of influence will also become more punctual, which may create a punctuality, you know, momentum that builds over time. And then maybe we mm -hmm. actually improve things a bit more collectively, but it kind of can mm -hmm. start with with my own actions. And I think that's something to, to really think about, because if it's bothering me mm -hmm. for as long as it has, I probably should do something so that I can at least own those behaviors more than just saying, well, I'm just going to have to accept this thing that I don't like. <laughs> and and that's not, that's not really my style. I often think there is, um, I go back, I've, I've long, like, we all have those things that we call ourselves, right? And that we, we mm -hmm. are like, I am a person yeah. who is this or does this. One mm -hmm. of the ones for, for me is that I, I will never forget in high school, mm -hmm. we had our, we have prom, right? We have junior mm -hmm. prom and, and senior prom. 
And in my high school, we had done, uh, we were in the Chicagoland area, and uh, we did the prom my junior year of high school on this mm-hmm. um, on this boat, on, on one of the um, uh, boats that goes out of Navy Pier, and you have like a little dance area or whatever. And like, yeah. it was it was kind of a funky prom thing mm-hmm. on this boat, but they had, they had booked this for like two or three straight years. Like they got a package deal. Right. Oh, do two of your proms in a row. And I'll, and nice. I will never forget at the end of the prom, everybody was like, well, that was fine, but there's no way we're doing this again. And like, there's no way I'm signing <laughs> up. I'm not going next year. The food was terrible. It was too expensive. The oh. boat was kind of dumb, but it was awful. Right. And we're not going to do this next year. I was oh. the only one who didn't go the next year because of what I had said after the first one. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, I owned that decision and I'm like, well, yeah, no, I'm not going my senior because I said that and I meant that and I agree with that. So I'm not going to do that. And, and everybody else around me just went and did it anyway, because it's like senior prom. Mm. Of course, you're going to go to senior prom. I'm like, peer pressure. I know what it's going to be. I don't, I don't need it. And, and Mm. I've long looked back on that a, you know, partially sad that I missed my prom that all my friends were at, but partially very proud that I was willing to take that stand and hold firm in a thing that I actually believed in when I said it and, and, and owned that decision. And I followed through Good. and I've had that Good. pattern throughout my career. I was like, yeah, I follow through on things. I'm a person mm-hmm. who follows through. I commit when I Good. commit, I am in it. And so okay. that is a fascinating thing that may not even have any point, but I think we all have those stories of, that we tell ourselves about ourselves that mm-hmm lead us to these kinds of patterns and decisions that we ultimately take in, in, in our careers and, and how we do. And I think that unpacking some of that is kind of a fun thing to think about. I haven't thought about that in a while, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it's like, do we have the ability to change? Like, should I have gone back on that decision like everybody else did, or did it end up becoming a more valuable life lesson versus the fun I would have had at that prom. I don't know. Like, all I know is the one that did happen. Um, and, I, and I look back on it, but I, I now and I now take some element of, of pride in that. But I think that too, like from your story perspective, right? With some of these challenges that you had with, with different organizations, whatever you identified, hey, this is a thing that mm-hmm. I need to overcome. I need to do better. And I'm going to create a business to help others do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's got to feel pretty good, right? Like that's got to be something that you can like hang your hat on and say, you know what? Now I'm mm-hmm. now I'm making a difference. I'm starting to help people uh, for real mm-hmm. in, in my career. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, at at the very least, I'm glad that I I tried this out, right? Because there's certain insights about driving you won't get until you get behind the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. And so to be able to try this out, and even if it fails, and I don't plan on letting it fail, but even if it does, to be able to say, hey, you know what? I'm glad I broke out of the status quo and I just didn't go along with my default life plan. Uh, just because everyone else thought it would be, you know, the right and best thing for me, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's your decision, right? Whether you said, hey, you know what, I thought about what I said, and I'm, you know, I'm going to adjust things, because you still could have gone to prom. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. there would be some scrutiny and be like, ah, you're a hypocrite. Da, da, da. It's <laughs> like, well, you know, and yeah, unfortunately, right? Uh, the other factor, so two things. Well, number one is, you know, peer pressure makes us do a lot of things we don't, we wouldn't do otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so, it's not that it goes away. You just need to find the right peers, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to run a marathon, hang out with marathoners, right? Um, same thing with identity. James Clear in Atomic Habits talks about, hey, if you say I'm a smoker, but I'm trying to quit versus I am now a non-smoker, mm-hmm. right? Now, now when you say, well, this is just who I am. I'm a non-smoker, right? Like identity is a two-edged sword. 
because when you when you're willing to assume an identity, um, you're attaching a lot of yourself and your values to this identity, right? And um, you know, it may work for a while, and there are identities that you may have to shed, right? Mm -hmm. I am. You know, I am a child and yet now I'm, you know, I'm not an actual father, but some people, you know, some identities are given to us, whether we like them or not. But others, uh, if we realize that we can be intentional about what identities, um, you know, who we want to become, uh, mm -hmm. now that's, you have a very powerful tool in your toolbox as to how you can move yourself forward to say, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a regular exerciser, right? Or now I'm a reader. I'm not just trying to read more books. I'm actually a reader and readers read books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I was going to ask you, like, what are some initial things that you can do? And I think you just answered that question mm -hmm. around, you know, reframing your own identity or even just evaluating what what are mm -hmm. those hats that you choose to wear that you say yes. to yourself about yourself? And then Good. which are those hats that you like and which ones are do not? And are you reinforcing mm -hmm. those negative behaviors because you've personalize that as part of your identity. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting thought. So where do you see, like, what are your plans for your business? Are you are you in, anticipating continuing to do coach like one on one? And, and do you work with leaders from a like personal development standpoint? Or do you mm -hmm. focus on career development? And where do you see this, um, this business of yours, uh, you know, expanding it and, and growing to uh, over time? What are your goals for that? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, I mean, for right now, right, uh, the the one thing I'm happy to tell you guys, I've only been open a year. And the main thing that saved my cash flow this year was private tutoring, right? Like, I didn't have enough clients to cover all these startup costs that you don't realize you have until you start paying them. And you're just like, Oh, I need a, a Canva license, you know, website insurance, holy cow, like, no wonder people charge, you know, hundreds of dollars an hour, <laughs> you know, because there's all these things you don't see. Um, but yeah, so the goal, uh, it'll inv always involve one-on-one -on -one coaching. That's really, um, even if like, the clients obviously don't necessarily have as deep pockets as corporations do, but I think that's where the real impact, you see the real impact where people say, yeah, you know, I finally, I was scared for my career path. So I actually sat down with my boss and we talked about what skill sets I need to develop so that I don't get caught up in the next round of cuts, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good, that's a good thing to talk about. Um, and then organizations, yeah, whether they need DEI training and say, hey, how do we deal with this, right? There are some inherent things in our subconscious or unconscious biases that are still affecting us, even though we've had plenty of, like, quote, trainings in PowerPoint about what are the right and wrong things to do, right? Um, and then otherwise, yeah, let me just do some online courses where people don't even necessarily need me to be present hmm. uh, to do the bulk of their own self-improvement. And so... Uh, yeah, the main focus of any workshops I do will be around relationships and conflict and how to really leverage that conflict as a blessing. And at the same time, right, I'm, I'm not, there are some secondary offers like personal development to say, hey, Jerry, how did you become, uh, you know, a musician? How did you become a better cook? How did you become, you know, uh, a salsa dancer? How did you become you know, all these other things. And so, you know, to offer my own path that, that they can learn from it and develop themselves, of course, it's always going to be available. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, one of the strengths that you'll have in your, in your coaching practices is, is you know, being open and sharing that mm -hmm. own personal journey. I think that, yeah. you know, being open, being vulnerable, you know, sharing that and helping others learn from it is such a, mm -hmm. you know, rich way to, impact others that 
you know, it's, it's, it's one of the most human and beneficial things that, that you can do. And, and I certainly appreciate you, um, you know, coming on the show today and, and talking about some of that and, you know, enlightening our audience about your journey and your offerings. But hopefully, you know, we've all thought a little bit more about our own lives, our own careers, our own passions, and some of the things that we want to work on. I think that's also a very human thing is that we're never going to be satisfied with who we are, or what we are, and, and what we do. And like, we're always trying to improve. And, and I think that, mm. um, you know, getting a little bit of, of help, getting a little bit of different perspective, like so many other contexts, uh, this mm -hmm. is a, a very valuable thing uh, that you'll be doing for, for your clients and, and for our audience out there from, from this show. Mm -hmm. So, Jerry, thank you so much for, for being on the show today and, and helping us uh, all see things from a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah, you're welcome. If, if anybody wants to, you know, reach out, just check out the website, adaptingleaders.com. Uh, there's a free PDF that you can get on hard conversations, schedule a complimentary 30 minute call, uh, or just check out my blog where I, I summarize uh, useful leadership books and offer other life hacks. So yeah. Awesome. And, to, to take, take me up on those. Absolutely. Yes, please do. And, and everyone out there, thank you for joining us today. You'll find more information and links in the show notes. Uh, propel your data leadership journey with my book, training and other services at algman.com. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.